0: Did you know that I once wanted to be a rock star? <laughs> Truly. Now, I wouldn't have said it that way at the time, uh, but my friends and I, we were really into the Seattle scene and the indie rock scene, and we, uh, we played out in this area quite a bit and actually had a little bit of a modicum of success for a short amount of time. and I actually had a halfway decent reputation as a drummer in this area for a couple of years. And so we had this plan, we were going to move out of our parents' house, houses, kind of consolidate our stuff, and move to Seattle and make it big. And so I moved out of my parents' house into, uh, actually, our bass player this morning, and I were roommates, as it turned out, eight years, because my two friends chickened out. And uh, it never happened. Now, here's some, a couple of pictures from that season of my life, um, and you can kind of see and I talked last week about growing up on a farm. That's one of the hay fields that I grew up in where we were kind of casting it in light of, uh, you know, like the U2 Joshua Tree era, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, God had other plans, praise Jesus. But uh, this was a season of life. And, you know, what it brought to mind as we're thinking about the text in Deuteronomy this morning, this, you know, this question that we all ask when we're little or is asked of us, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And then, you know, those questions start to form differently. If you're a Christian this morning, and if you're a parent, you, you ask your kids those questions in a little bit of a reframed way, right? Like, what does the Lord want you to be? What do you think God is leading you to be? How is God going to use your gifts and the, the interests that you have for his kingdom? And so on and so forth. We're kind of looking at, at that this morning uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we're going to see that God wants his people to be uniquely His, to be set apart from the nations around them. The biblical word is is holy. He wants them to be holy, set apart to Himself, and to bring Him glory, to point others to Him. And guess what, folks? That hasn't changed. That's what God wants for us as well, to bring Him glory, to point others uh, to His name. So it's not so much that God is as concerned about whether you want to be or are a rock star or a stay-at-home mom, or an engineer, or a pastor, or whatever it is that you are, but that you are uniquely set apart to be his. You know, in, in all of the things that we do with our lives, as Christians, I think that there is, particularly if you're raised in the church, there's this thing that kind of creeps into our thinking that holiness equates to busyness, right? Doing God stuff, good stuff, being busy, performance-based Christianity, if you will. Wayne Muller writes this, he says, the busier we are, the more important we seem to ourselves and we imagine to others. Uh, in his book that's rather dated now, uh, but it's still so relevant, Gordon MacDonald writes in Ordering a Private World, we have a naive view that the most publicly active Christian is the most privately spiritual or mature, that the more information about the Bible one possesses, we think, the closer he or she must be to God. And so then we give an imbalanced attention to our public world at the expense of our private. And thereby, fatigue, disillusionment, failure, defeat, all become frightening possibilities. In Deuteronomy 17, Moses is going to show his people and thereby us what is most important to God. And it's that holiness matters to God, both corporately as his people and privately. But not only that, not only does God... Uh, call his people to holiness, but he gives them the means of holiness through the principles we'll look at today. And then as we move to the New Testament and consider Christ's body and blood, we'll see also he gives us the man of holiness, Jesus himself. You see, holiness is important to God, and so he gives us Jesus. That's what we're looking at this morning. Pray with me. Father, uh, as we approach your word this morning, Lord, I'm, I'm humbled to be able to share from Deuteronomy 17 Lord, this series to this point, the, the, the chunk that we did in the fall and that which we've done this winter has been rich and, and meaningful and life-changing and impactful. And so, Lord, I ask that the same thing would, would occur in our lives this morning, that you, oh God, would be our teacher by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the time we could be together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be looking at uh, the entire chapter for the most part. I want to let you know we're going to kind of gloss the first two thirds and really drill down on the latter third. Now, if you were with us over the last few weeks, we talked about over the last couple of weeks that, that God actually, in his law in Deuteronomy, mandates that his people celebrate and rejoice. In other words, it's it's part of the commands of his law and the rhythms of their year and so on and so forth, both informally and formally, that they celebrate, that they throw parties, that they recognize and celebrate his goodness, and that they do so rejoicing, as it said a couple weeks ago, rejoicing with your family, but also including the Levites and uh, the poor among you and so on and so forth. At the end of chapter 16, what we didn't look at is there's a very short section where uh, God says to his people to appoint judges to help carry out the law in and amongst the people, and that's where we're going to pick it up this morning, and the, the topic that we're going to address very briefly in the opening two-thirds is the topic of idolatry among the people, purity, wholeness, etc. Uh, verse two, chapter 17, it begins. "If a man or woman among you in one of your towns that the Lord your God will give you is discovered doing evil in the sight of the Lord your God, and violating his covenant and has gone to serve other gods by bowing down and worship to the Son." "'moon, or all the stars in the sky, which I have forbidden, "'and if you are told or hear about it, "'then investigate it thoroughly. "'If the report turns out to be true "'that this detestable act has been done in Israel, "'you are to bring out to your city gates "'that man or woman who has done this evil thing "'and stone them to death. "'Though the one condemned to die "'is to be executed on the testimony "'of two or three witnesses. "'No one is to be executed on the testimony "'of one witness.' The witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And after that, the hands of all the other people. You must purge the evil from among you. If a case is too difficult for you concerning bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, cases disputed at your city gates, then go up to the place the Lord your God chooses. You are to go to the Levitical priests and the judge who presides at that time. Ask, and they will give you a verdict in the case. You must abide by the verdict that they give you at the place The Lord your God chooses. Be careful to do exactly as they instruct you. You must abide by the instruction that they give you and the verdict that they announce to you. Do not turn to the right or to the left from the decision that they declare to you. The person who acts arrogantly, refusing to listen to either the priest who stands there serving the Lord your God or to the judge, must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear about it, be afraid, and no longer behave arrogantly. Well, this first section is dealing with the purging of evil, and we see these principles of punishment, if you will. It's a lot of Ps, but you get the idea. And it it begins with the accusation. When an accusation is made that someone has committed idolatry, namely they've been bowing down to other people, there are three simple principles that, that God wants his people to follow. Number one, investigate it thoroughly. Do due diligence. Overturn every rock, as it were. Number two, establish guilt only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, one witness is not sufficient uh, to establish guilt. And then, upon finding them guilty, those witnesses are to be the first to be party to the punishment. Now, all the people are to be involved in the punishment, but the witnesses are the ones who are to be at the first. And in these three principles, God ensures against a uh, flippant or emotional or conspiratorial false accusation and execution by all three of these things having to be observed. And so the people would, uh, and and at the same time, by the way, there is execution that would happen. It It was to be followed by this protocol, and if there was guilt, there was to be execution. Purge the evil from among you, says multiple times. Now, in the case of difficult cases... In the earlier verses, it references the city gates multiple times. They were to move from the city gates to the city of Jerusalem itself. Now, the city gates, just to kind of give us a little historical background, are not like, uh, you know, gates at the entrance to the woods or a field like you might see uh, in some places in New England or even like a medieval city gate, right, with a drawbridge and a moat and sort of entering through, you know, Lord of the Rings style or whatever, The ancient city gates were actually more or less a huge building that the the walls would kind of go out from that had multiple chambers where civic business was done. This is at Tel Hetzor uh, in the Middle East. This was uh, excavated um, about 10 years ago, I think. And uh, you could see the multiple chambers, and all kinds of town business would be done there, legal and otherwise. So this is where Boaz went to negotiate to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. And and Abraham with Abimelech, and, and on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. So it's was a place that business was done. But if this, the case, a certain case could not be resolved, they were then to go up to Jerusalem to the ruling high priest, and in fact, in the beginning of the text, the, the whole Levitical priesthood, and the judge who was appointed at the time, and this body would sort of serve as like a, a supreme court, and they would hear the hard cases. And there's a clear indication in the principles for difficult cases that the people bringing the case to Jerusalem were to submit themselves to the authority of this this uh, higher governing body, such that three verses say repeatedly, "You must obey whatever they decide, whatever the verdict is, whatever they announce, must be followed absolutely to the punishment of death." Purge the evil from among you, and again, in so doing, we have these checks. And balances that while God takes holiness so seriously to the point of even punishing by death, he puts in place things to make sure that, it, that the accusations and the cases are accurately represented and quite literally executed. In so doing, the last verse in this section tells us that following these principles will purge the evil from among you, that the people will see it, and it actually uses the word deterrent. And so if you're a criminal justice person, there's biblical precedent that punishment is, in fact, a deterrent in a society. Uh, And you can kind of go down some rabbit trails with that, but it certainly is a biblical idea. Here's the the big point this morning. Here's the application. Holiness is important to God in our communal life. And and you'll see in your notes, we put the parentheses, the church. Now, what's interesting and noteworthy, many of you will recognize right away, gosh, these are principles by which our our government works, judicial principles, right? There's There's a thorough investigation a multitude of witnesses, and that the, the witnesses are actually involved in the prosecutory process. That's very American, in a sense. And, and while that's true, uh, Israel is a, uh, is a theocracy. The United States is not or was not a theocracy, meaning that God is its principal ruler through Moses and ultimately out through the judges, and I would argue this, that the United States is not a Christian nation, per se, in as much as our system of government is informed by biblical principles. And so, uh, two different times, two different contexts, but the principles are really valid. And when a society steps away from any foundational absolute principles, like these for our judicial system, it begins to erode. But here's the deal, here's the rub. The analog to God's covenant community Israel in the ancient world is not the state or any government. The analog in the New Testament and today is the church, the body of Christ, specifically the local church. So for you and me, that's Groton Bible Chapel. So the principles apply while our founders certainly used some of these things in forming our system of government, the application is for us as a church today. And so very briefly uh, this morning as we talk about holiness, Think about the fact that God called his people to be uniquely holy, even to the point of executing by death people who digressed or or rebelled against him. This was for the purpose that as the nations around Israel looked at the ordered and principled way, which was very different, in which Israel governed itself, they would learn something of the God who led them. So too today, the community around us ought to be able to learn something of the Jesus we worship through the commitment, the principles, and the manner in which we do life together as a church community. Paul says in Ephesians, when talking about all kinds of relational dynamics before he ends with marriage, he says, submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's covenantal language. That's what we're called to as a people. In fact, we think this is so profound and important uh, that this spring the elders and pastoral staff here will be leading us as a church through the book of Ephesians where Paul uses six metaphors to describe the deep, intimate commitment of what it means to be the local church. And we're going to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be committed together in a different, new way here at Groton Bible Chapel? It's going to be a fascinating series and something new uh, that we're really, really excited about. Well, that brings us through the principles for punishment. Let's look at the last section. We'll spend the rest of our time this morning. It's in verse 14 to 20. It says this, "'When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. Appoint a king from among your brothers. You are not to set a foreigner over you or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses.' For the Lord has told you, you are to never go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself, so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver or gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to write a copy of this instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of this instruction and to do these statutes. Then his heart will not be exalted above his countrymen. He will not turn from this command to the right or left and he and his sons will continue reigning many years in Jerusalem. I've not been excited about a passage in Deuteronomy to this level, I don't think yet. This is a powerful Profound passage for our application uh, that I'm just really excited to take us through this morning, and there are again there's three principles. The first is that the king was to be God's choice. That God was the one to make the choice of king, and that the king had to come from among the people. Now it's it's really interesting that God puts this law in place. In very many ways, this section of Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20, is a provisional law based on what God knows his people are going to do later. And we can anticipate and read about that in in 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'll give you sort of a succinct uh, paraphrase of it this morning. Uh, A few hundred years later, during the time of Samuel. Samuel is the last judge in Israel before the time of the kings. Many of you have been studying the book of Judges this past year. Samuel's the last one. And the people of Israel, they come to Samuel and say, say, Samuel, dude, you're old. Your sons are nothing like you. We do not want to follow them. In fact, we want a king like all the other countries around us. We want a king, we want to look like the other nations, we want to be like them. Samuel responds, he says, no, 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 don't do this thing, don't rebel against the Lord. And God actually intervenes. You can read again in 1 Samuel 8. He says, No, it's okay. They're not actually rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But paraphrasing again, this is all part of the plan, Samuel. Allow them to have a king. And of course, Saul comes into power, and then subsequent to Saul, King David. It's so fascinating to me that God puts this in his law, that in his sovereignty, God knows that his people at some point are going to rebel against him and want a king like all their nations, but again, in his sovereignty, that God uses the king in Israel, the institution of the king to bring about later the Messiah, the king of kings, Jesus himself, that it's provided for in the law. See, God's king, or Israel's king, was to be God's choice. He is in in control of the whole process and he knew this ahead of time. Well, then we get into the the principles of how the king is actually supposed to lead. And we have three limitations of the king and three principles about absorbing or living out the word of God. These are the the principles that I'm really excited to share with you this morning and they apply to every one of us because even though this was for God's king, God's king was was a model for the rest of the people that all the people should live this way. Sort of like when we studied elders here at GBC and we said, you know, all of us ought to be aspiring to live under the, the uh, requirements that Paul talks about in Timothy and Titus for eldership. It's something that, that uh, is put there as a model. It's something that we want to model as parents and so on and so forth. So what are the principles? First, there are God's limitations. And the first limitation he puts on his king is he's not to have many horses. Now, unless you happen to live on a ranch, you're probably sitting there going like, I'm good with that one. Don't have any horses. We're good. But here, here, when you hear horses, hear tanks or submarines or armies or military might. This particular limitation on God's king was that he would not be reliant on his military prowess for his source of strength and or deliverance, but he would learn to rely on the Lord his God. And then there's this attachment thing where it says, or go back to Egypt to get them. And he says, remember that you've been delivered from there. Don't ever go back that way again. And the principle for us this morning is you may remember that, that Israel's deliverance out of Egypt serves as a type for you and me today, what is a type? A type is an Old Testament person, place, or event that pictures New Testament truth. And so we've talked about the fact that Israel's deliverance from Egypt through the Red Sea is a picture of my and your deliverance from sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so what Moses is saying to his, to his king is, don't become dependent on your military strength and might. For goodness sake, don't go back where you came from, where you've been delivered from. And certainly God, through the cross of Jesus Christ, delivers us from all sin, past, present, and future in our lives. But probably there's some sort of category of sin, unless you were, you know, saved when you were a little teeny kid, that you can remember that like, God saved me from that. Moses is saying, don't go back to the very place God delivered you from. He forbids it, actually. And don't depend on your own strength. God's king not to have many horses. Now, the second thing is not to have many wives. And this is not just a polygamy thing, even though many of the nations around uh, Israel are certainly polygamous, and it's not purely a sexual fidelity thing, although that's certainly a significant part of it. He says, don't have many wives so that your heart may not be led astray. Remember, our context is idolatry. And what's intimated in the idea of many kings is that that would uh, sort of include many uh, treaties or binding relationships, alliances with other kingdoms, something that Israel is strictly forbidden from, from making any treaties or any alliances with the surrounding wicked and pagan nations. And so, so there's multiple things going on here. Certainly he wants his king to be pure, to be devoted to his family, but even more than that, that by having multiple wives, he would be binding him to ungod- himself and his people to ungodly kingdoms. That is a tremendous application for us here in the area of sexual sin. Now, if you think about, and I'll speak sort of primarily to the men, although I know it's, women are not exempt from struggling with sexual sin, but primarily to the men. This idea of having multiple wives finds itself in our world in virtual sexual sin, that is through pornography, or physical sexual sin, whether that be through adultery or hookups or whatever it might be. That what's being taught in a principled way here is when we do that, when we engage with that sinful behavior, we are in fact binding ourselves to another kingdom, an ungodly kingdom. We know today through both what the scripture teaches, modern medicine and modern psychology, that sexual union binds us in multiple ways. And by the way, the Bible predates any of the confirmation and affirmation of our our time. Paul says in Corinthians that he who unites himself to a prostitute becomes one with her. And so that's an area of of previous failure or or challenge or struggle or, or sin for you. The danger goes beyond just the act of what you're looking at or engaging in to the fact that you as a Christian are binding yourself to another kingdom, an ungodly kingdom. Now, if that's you this morning, don't despair. We're going to get to the hope in a minute, but we're covering the limitations. He's not to have many horses. He's not to have many wives. He's not to have much gold, silver, or wealth. Same idea as the first point, that the king was not to become uh, dependent and resting in his wealth, in his resources, if you were. Proverbs 30 contains this uh, sort of uh, poetically the attitude, the heart that's being got out here. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you. He's talking to God here, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal and profane the name of my Lord. First part of that. that, that God's king would not have so much that he would turn his back on his God. And so these these three uh, prohibitions or limitations are that God's king and God's people would not be dependent on their own strength, they wouldn't be dependent on foreign, specifically on godly alliances, and that they wouldn't be dependent on their own resources, again, that they'd be uniquely set apart and be uniquely his. God's choice, God's limitations. Finally, God's word. I love this section. It's so... uh, It's such a unique and positive little section. If you hear nothing else this morning, this next part about God's Word, write it down, think on it, meditate on it. He says this to the king. Now, it's interesting. At this time, the copying of Scripture would have done by scribes and and other academic and priestly sorts. But he says that the king that I choose is to have these limitations, and then when it comes to his word, he's to make his own handwritten copy of this instruction, probably meeting De- Deuteronomy, although you could make a case for the whole Torah, in the presence of the Levitical priests. And there's sort of the a, a motive of accountability there, right? That the copy that he makes for himself would actually be accurate. He's to make a copy for himself that he's to read every day. This is fascinating on several levels. First, you know, we know today how we learn, right? We learn multiple ways. We learn orally, we learn uh, visually, and we learn uh, even more if we do something tactile, if we write it down. It's as if God's including all of that, that his people's leader would know his word, that it would be personally theirs, and then that they would appropriate it into their lives daily. Folks, that applies to us today absolutely, that God's word would be personally ours that we would appropriate into our life every day. But God goes beyond that. He gives three reasons and the three results, and they're beautiful. What are the three reasons and the three results? Number one, that he would learn to fear the Lord his God, that the king, the ruler of his people, would see himself as a person under authority, that he would be submissive to God's rule in his life and not begin to get prideful. Number two, that he would observe the words of God, that now seeing himself under the authority of someone else, namely God himself, that he would see the words. What does it say? What is it telling me to do and to not do and how to lead? We see this early in Solomon's life where he deeply desires to know how to lead God's people. And then finally, maybe this is obvious, but it's, it's in the text here, is that he'd actually do what it says. Right? He'd actually be obedient. James tells us, don't merely be hearers of the word, but be doers also. So three reasons that he'd learn to fear the Lord, see himself as a man, or applying that to us today, man or a woman under authority, that he'd know what, what it says, observe the words, and then, and then do them. And what are the three results? That he'd have a pure heart. He would not see himself above his, the people that he's leading. He'd have a pure and humble heart. That's the result of making God's word a daily part of his life. That his behavior would be righteous. That he'd walk out these principles and expectations of holiness. And thirdly, in the lavish grace of our God, that he'd have a godly legacy. These principles apply to you and me today. It's fascinating, fascinating stuff. God's choice, God's limitations, God's word. So our second application, holiness is important to God in the structures, if you will, of my private life. God cares about how we live communally in our first application, but how we live privately. And all of us in some sphere or another are leaders, right? Whether that's just of your two little kids at home or you're a a, a Navy CO or you lead a corporation, great principles well, it begs the question, like, this sermon can kind of feel a little bit like a do and don't list, right? A little bit, how do I, all right, how do I live out these principles? Well, it's interesting that God gives us two pictures, at least, two really clear pictures in scripture. The first I want to share with you is an antitype of God's ideal king in the latter life of Solomon. And the other is the, the type that is in Jesus himself. So let's look first at the antitype. Remember those three limitations uh, many horses, many wives, much wealth. Solomon breaks all three of these prohibitions and limitations in the mid to later part of his kingship uh, in spades. I mean, exponentially. Solomon, it says not to have many horses. Solomon had 1,400 chariots, which, is, which attached to that, both literally and, and figuratively, is there are horses to pull those chariots. Two verses later, and this is in 1 Kings 10 and 11, it says that his horses were imported from Egypt. Solomon not only has thousands and thousands of the best horses in the world, but he actually sends people from his kingdom back to Egypt to get them from Egypt because Egypt and Q, another nation, have the best horses. Direct contradiction to the ideal of Deuteronomy 17 and again, exponential, not just many horses, but thousands. He's not to have many wives. Solomon, 1 Kings 11 tells us, loved many foreign women. And then it actually gives us the numbers, that he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 wives who were concubines. And as if the prohibition and the concern of it were not enough in Deuteronomy, it's exactly fleshed out in Solomon's life in 1 Kings 11, where it says this, and when he was old, his wives led him away from the Lord to serve and follow other gods. He didn't just have many wives, he had a thousand wives. What about the last prohibition? Solomon, if you grew up in Sunday school, you know he was the richest king that ever lived. Solomon's wealth was exponential. It was was hyperbolic. It was beyond comprehension. The amount of gold that was imported to Solomon's kingdom, Kings tells us, was 25 tons a year on an annual basis that Solomon made silver so uh, uh, abundant in Jerusalem, it was like stones, it was like rocks, and that he was the richest king of his time, perhaps ever. I'm sure someone has done the math on the equa- uh, equating Solomon's wealth then to today. But God gives us, I believe, Solomon as an antitype of the ideal of Deuteronomy chapter 17 to remind us that this is where our hearts could go. Remember, this is a godly king of Israel in the beginning of his rule. But that our hearts can, as we begin to drift from the Lord. Now, I don't expect if I come to your house and have coffee with you that you're gonna have you know, 1,500 horses in your backyard. Again, it's, it's, it's figurative and spiritually applied for us today. But to know in my own heart, depending on my own strength, Right? depending on uh, relationships and alliances that are ungodly, depending on my own resources, that that's where I can go in my heart. So how do we do this? How do we pull it off? We said in the beginning, our, our big point is that holiness is important to God, and so he gives us Jesus. Jesus is where, where Solomon fails completely, Jesus fulfills completely. He fulfills absolutely. Jesus is God's choice as king. 1 Timothy 6 tells us that he, Jesus, is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. Revelation 19 says he has his name written on his robe and on his thigh, king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus is the supreme potentate. He is the choice of God to rule and to reign the entire universe. Well, what about the, the limitations? Jesus, because he's incorruptible and sinless, is God's limitless king. And so, when it comes to horses, while on this earth Jesus had nothing, he said, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Yet Jesus, the Son of God, owned all the dang horses. Psalm 50 tells us that not only does he own the cattle in a thousand hills, but all the animals of the forest are mine. God is making this point that he owns everything. And I don't think it's accidental in view of passages like Deuteronomy 17 that that includes all of the livestock and all of the wild animals as well. He says this later in Isaiah, talking about offerings. He doesn't need bulls and goats. He wants hearts. But what about wives? This one's unique because Jesus only has one bride, one glorious bride for whom he died. If you're new to the Bible, the bride of Christ, you see this most clearly in Revelation 19, is the church. It is the gathered people of God for all time, those who know and love and call Jesus Savior and Lord. Through all of human history, they are his bride, the church. And listen to what Isaiah says, anticipating the coming of Christ. I love the language here. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Jesus, our bridegroom, rejoices over us. And he is completely devoted and loyal to one bride, the church. What about wealth? Jesus has wealth, riches, and honor beyond description. What Solomon had is nothing. He has all wealth of all time. Isaiah 8 says, with me are riches and honor and lasting wealth and righteousness. He is God's choicest king. He is God's limitless king. And he is the word made alive. God's word alive. John 1.14 tells us that God that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, made his dwelling among us. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. God, the chosen, uh, Jesus, the chosen king of God, who is limitless, chose to live among us. He is the word made flesh. He is all of this, and yet Paul tells us and tells you this morning, if you've not heard this before, that God made him, Jesus, the perfect, sinless, supreme potentate of all the universe, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. He made him to be sin for you, to be sin for me, to be my sin, that the wrath of God would be poured out on the limitless king, Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. He is all of those things, God's chosen king, God's limitless king. And yet Paul says, instead, he emptied himself, taking on the form of the servant, being in the form of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And for this reason, Paul says in Philippians 2, for what reason? Because he emptied himself, because he humbled himself, because he went to the point of death, even death on the cross. For that reason, God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. How do we do this holiness thing? God cares so much about holiness that he gives us not just the means through these wonderful principles, he gives us the man of holiness, That by repentance and faith, by turning away from our, if I can use the term, Solomonic tendencies, and moving in faith toward Christ and receiving what he did for us on the cross, he then begins to live his resurrected, perfect righteousness through us so that we actually can walk this stuff out. The answer is you can't do it on your own. That's why we come to the table this morning to break this little piece of bread and drink this little cup to remember what Jesus did. I invite you to take your communion cup now and I'm going to give thanks to the bread and I'm going to give thanks for the cup. We're going to do this together. I want to give you 20, 30 seconds to just, just be with the Lord. Get right with him. If you're not a Christian this morning, we'd ask you to, refrain from taking part in this, but ask us, what does that mean? Tell me more. I want to be right with God. I want to know Jesus. those of you who know and love the Lord, take these few seconds, and then I'll lead us in taking the bread and the cup.